0: Part Two, Chapter Nine of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canada's One Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part Two, Chapter Nine No Man's Land. On September third, the day after the Drucord caillant line is smashed. The first echelon of Canadian Corps headquarters moves up from Noelle villon to Nouvelle-Vitas. We follow the headquarters of the 1st Canadian Division, and that, in its turn, had taken possession of a captured enemy headquarters. Two miles east of Nouvelle-Vitas lies the village of Wancourt, low-lying on the banks of the Cujules, and between them is the valley where our troops in support are crowded. A secondary road, in shocking bad condition, runs east from Nouvelle Vitasse, downhill through this valley, and so up over the Wangcourt Ridge, to drop down into the valley of the Sensi at Cheris, continuing its switchbacks over one ridge after another through Hendencourt and Riencourt to Caillant. From the eastern suburbs of Arras, through its entire length to Quyant, the road bisects no man's land which here therefore has a depth of twelve miles that is the segment of total destruction and does not include the tattered fringe west of arras and east of the canal du nord to cambrai about a thousand yards east of nouvelle vitasse where this road debouches from the slope into the valley what is little more than a track turns off to the right passing up over the Henil ridge in a general southeasterly direction like so many roads in the district this track by the wear of centuries has become so worn down as to present the characteristics of a sunken road or defile a few hundred yards toward the ridge the enemy had here established his divisional headquarters with an elaborate system of dugouts on the west side of the road protected by the high bank from all but plunging fire the disadvantage of taking over enemy dugouts in any situation at all, is that the defense is exposed in reverse, or, in other words, enemy shells may explode right in their mouths facing that way. Nothing of the kind indeed happens here, but it is a fact worth bearing in mind as a constant feature of our advance. In the old days of trench warfare, when we thus captured and consolidated an enemy trench system, we proceeded at once to dig shelters on the opposite side as being less exposed. But in the advance that was now beginning, and was to gain more and more impetus as the weeks went by, there was no time for anything of the kind. Not until we cleared the entire trench system and began to billet in inhabited villages did our men get any kind of comfort or shelter. For the most part they slept in the open field, each man scooping out for himself a shallow shelter, digging a pit at the bottom for drainage. This track leading up to corps headquarters is a villainous mud-hole, and in the days to follow, the most distinguished visitors, including high French officials and our army commanders, come to congratulate the corps on its achievement, as well as parties of Canadians from London, are all too apt to mire their cars in its treacherous bottom. The dugouts do not accommodate all the staff, and some of its higher ranks live and work in Armstrong huts erected along the sunken road but most of us are under canvas the whole camp being neatly camouflaged with particular view to the aspect from the sky we remain in this hideous spot the very heart and core of no man's land most of september for days on end it rains tents are crowded close on every available piece of high ground but the floor of each must be sunk below the surface and in effect becomes little better than the bottom of a shell hole Canadian engineers are soon at work laying duckwalks along the road, but whole sections disappear at night, passing surreptitiously into these tents to afford an uneasy footing above the standing water. Such mysterious depredations daunt the indefatigable engineer not one whit. And about the time we move on to Quion, the camp presents a neat and ordered appearance, with a solid roadbed built up from the ruins of the neighboring villages. In early September, however, a worse situation cannot be imagined. Heine is a fairly regular visitor at night, and no lights are allowed. The bugle call and the dreary cry of lights out, lights out, is as regular as dinner hour. It is impossible to take two steps in the dark without falling into a shell hole or stumbling over wire. Very early in the morning, Fritzie has an uncomfortable habit of waking us up with a fusillade and during all these weeks he continues sending long-range shells into arras plastering the railway station and yards at set intervals there is a whine overhead and long after comes the muffled sound of an explosion back behind the camp on top of heniel ridge is the Corps' wireless plant where signals is at work day and night from here a wide view of the surrounding country presents itself northeast across the valley stands out a sentinel. At sunset a few misshapen tree trunks, stripped of their foliage, etched sharp against the western glow, mark the ridge of Nouvelle Vitas. For four years this desolated strip east of Arras has been the battlefield. We are situated, indeed, in midst of the original Hindenburg line. In the dim days of creation there might have been such a scene as this, the earth void and formless but to it are added the despair and the melancholy of the blotting out of what once was a smiling countryside. Villages dotted these hills, but where once was the village park, now only are the maimed and blackened stumps of trees, and below a rubble of brick and charred timber. Even the street outlines have disappeared. Ruthless necessity of military roads has cut straight through the debris. The soil is a good light loam on chalk. Generations ago, so it seems, these broad uplands were intensively cultivated by their thrifty peasant proprietors. Now the most careful search fails to reveal the mark of a plough or any trace of the hand of man. It is as if a malignant subterraneous power had fretted the surface and robbed it of all form and meaning. marked by shell-holes, great and small, scarred by deep trench systems old and new, each sunken road lined with the foul mouths of dugouts. These once bright fields are as inanimate as a corpse, shrouded in cerements of rusted barbed wire. Dreary, desolate, and gray, it is a landscape that crushes the imagination and torments the spirit. In all these years of trench warfare, there has been only this nothingness in front of the heroic defenders. Overhead screamed messengers of death, plowing up the land around them. The filthy trench and verminous dugout was their sole alternative. It is incredible that they should have endured, have fought on, have abandoned themselves to such a life, in such a place, for an idea, with no hope, no prospect of alleviation or change, save through death and the hospital cot. In their miry squalor they could not see the bright dawn of to-day. Yet they took everything in trust, they grumbled, they suffered, but they endured, they fought on. This frayed fringe of battle stretches from Flanders to the Vosges, varying only in comparative terms of ruin. The Hun may take of the life, but not of the character of the French people. There is something cosmic in their mute, unconscious resistance. Not so much of the men, nor of the admirable women and children, but of the soul of a nation that suffers but does not despair. In this brooding area are to be marked the distinctions between the waning and cessation of life before us all has gone but an heiress still is some sign of life and further back the villagers their roofs untiled and windows unglazed carry on the daily task dulled even to a sudden burst of long-range shelling or the rain of blind hate from a starry sky this no-man's land is a technical term of the war whose significance can be captured only through the imagination here once a village flourished mill-wheels turned and hither creaking wagons drew loads of grain. Here processions wound up the village church, gay for the marriage festival, or white-bannered for the solemn pledge of youth and maid. Here wended also the decent funeral cortege. Here on his appointed day, Monsieur Le Maire made his oration on France and her free spirit. Here the good citizens chatted at evenings upon the benches in the square. And here worthy pupils, duly garlanded, received THEIR MODEST HONORS. IT IS NECESSARY TO RECONSTRUCT THESE HUMBLE SCENES TO APPRECIATE THE DEVASTATION. THE AREAS OF SUCH VILLAGES ARE WIPED OUT. THEIR FAMILIAR FEATURES HAVE VANISHED. VANISHED, TOO, ARE THEIR CHILDREN. SOME ARE DEAD. SOME COWER IN CELLARS AT THE FRINGE OF NO MAN'S LAND. SOME HAVE BEEN TAKEN BY THE HUN, HOMELESS AND AFRAID. HERE ARE FAIR LANDS OF FRANCE. HERE TO THE CRY OF THE PLOWMAN, THE yoked OXEN STRAINED and in due season the binder reaped of the earth her abundance. Ordered stacks peopled the valleys, and into their fastnesses drove the threshing machine. In and out of that pleasant scene ran the shuffle of children's feet, and the bright thread of children's laughter. All are obliterated. Blotted out are the villages and the countryside. There remains the anguish of a people that would not be subdued and in its hoarse note of defiance there mingles as bitterest seed from the trodden grape the pitiable note of stricken childhood four years of war is an immeasurable span in the life of a child it is an implacable generation france is rearing on this borderland the scene is on the road from valenciennes to mons long weeks after our troops streaming forward crowd against the left ditch another current trickling westward it is the French evacuees returning from liberated mons to seek their homes, but much against the wish and advice of the civil authorities. A woman, old and bent, is pushing a two wheeled cart, piled high with bedding, all she saved when evacuated. A sturdy lad is yoked in front, throwing his weight on the rope. We asked some questions. And where are you going? Back to our home, Monsieur, he cries joyfully. Back to our home and Wencourt in wencourt these two must pass through the Drucourt quaint line end of part 2 chapter 9 recording by david lawrence in brampton ontario january 2010 end of canada's 100 days part 2 by john levsey